0: Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marian Manicker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. This is a special edition of the Artelligence Podcast, sponsored by Christie's Education New York, Christie's Education, where art history meets the art market. In this edition of the Artelligence Podcast, I'm joined by David Norman to discuss the November sales of Impressionist and Modern Art in New York. David offers us the benefit of his 30 years' experience as an auction house specialist in Impressionist and Modern Works. The discussion covers the highlights of the sales, Edvard Munch's Girls on the Bridge, the strong abstract work by Kandinsky, and the much-fought-over Monet Grainstacks. David has some very interesting comments on in the market history of several of these works, We also touch upon some of the surprise sales by Picasso, Miro, Chagall, and Keyes van Dongen. At the end, you'll hear an interesting discussion of one of the world's great art collections that is being masterfully dispersed over time. Uh, David Norman, thank you for taking the time to talk about the Impressionist and Modern Sales with me. My pleasure, thank you for inviting me. So we had a big November uh, that was I think a last minute um, surprise to everyone Going into the season, there was a fair amount of effort to secure lots and even a feeling that it was a sparse season. And then just after the freeze sales, uh, sometime in early November, well, maybe I guess late October, there was an announcement of two very big lots, one at each house that went on to be the top lots, um, which seems to have been more just happenstance than, I think, a a change in the economy or worries about the election, since obviously the election went in the way that most people were worried about about it. Do you have some overall uh, impressions about both the gathering of material for the sales and then about how the sales uh, themselves took place?
1: Yeah, I do. Now, historically, it's always been a real uphill battle to get consignments uh, for the national election season. You know, whomever the candidates, everyone generally has some concerns about the, you know, uncertainty, the difficulty in predicting the outcome and how the markets will react, so you're already at a disadvantage, regardless of, you know, the macroeconomic environment, um, getting those consignments. Um, Then Particularly Sotheby's, I think, uh, really burrowed down and worked hard to get these third-party um, guarantees to draw out the paintings. Uh, certainly the Edvard Monk really truly came at the eleventh hour as sort of being a nearby observer to these processes. Uh, that was uh, something in which The seller would not have consigned it without a guarantee, and Sotheby's, I presume, was not going to be disposed to offering a guarantee at that level. So it was finding, in a sense, a buyer. They did it uh, for that. Uh, They did it for um, several other works. There was an early Van Gogh, um, Gladioli, uh, in which they used a guaranteed bid to secure the property. With Christie's, uh, I do know that the competition for the Kandinsky had begun quite some time ago, uh, and you know Christie's, I believe, won that for providing the higher guarantee. It was quite interesting that right up until the day of the sale, I think the the commonly uh, held
0: belief was that they may have overreached
1: on a guarantee, which was about 18
0: million. Yeah, that was one of those lots that seemed to provoke a lot of um, gossip, for lack of a better term, strong feelings. There were were opinions sort of all over the map. I mean, certainly uh, Christie's made it clear they had confidence in it by uh, uh, bringing it up, putting a very strong number on it. And then there was a lot of, um, you know, Questioning about all that, in the end, actually bidders came out. It 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 didn't sell to uh, the guarantee. No, it didn't,
1: and you know that was an interesting um, process because I was still at Sotheby's at the early phases of this, and there was a lot of discussion going on in our offices, and I have no doubt at Christie's as well, as. How high can one estimate and guarantee a work that was post-1930, after the Bauhaus period, because prior to then, I think it had been 10 years ago while we were at Sotheby's, we sold a 1930 work for about 10 million, but it was clear to win this painting somebody needed to be a lot closer to 20 uh, with the guarantee. Uh, Christie stepped in, they did it on their own books, I think this might have been one of those occasions where the consigner was not going to allow or authorize either auction house to seek uh, a third party bid in advance and they had a lot of guts and they were definitely uh, appearing to have been looking for a third party to take over the guarantee after the catalog was out and that had uh, been kind of in the air for quite a while and it was only affirming I think for Sotheby's that they probably made the right cautious move because Christie's was looking to uh, offload it. Uh, But it looked to me like at the 11th hour they found somebody, that somebody had guts and they made a really smart call which I don't think anyone else was ready to and when we all started seeing um, you know the the partners Ruth and Katone start bidding. That was a real surprise for everyone. It really felt it was just going to go uh, around the hammer price of eighteen million, uh, and then they jumped in and. Uh, You know, I'm sure, remembering my old days, I'm sure there were Sotheby's people watching online saying, yes, yes, we made the right choice. You know, they're going to...
0: And then gnashing their teeth. They're going to make no
1: money. And then all of a sudden, bid by bid, it starts to climb. And so the lesson on that one is that the market is so starved for works of great quality that it has long since broken free of any of these you know, restrictions, the kind of parameters I was taught. People aren't interested in post-1960s Picassos, post-Bauhaus Kandinsky's, you know, are not good sellers. There's not enough material in the marketplace for people to be that choosy. And I think it's both by necessity and also by sort of true acts of reappraising.
0: Well, and in, in, in Kandinsky in particular, the market is so Um, spotty. They're rare works that come up. They don't really come up in in patterns. right? There's just not enough. The last big sellers I think were much earlier Murnau works that were sort of transition uh, works for for him and those did very well two or three years ago and normally that would bring out more Kandinsky's either of that sort or some other part of his body of work but that didn't seem to happen and we might have had one other one between I think at Christie's as well. I mean, and and, uh, to their credit, I think they've sold the last two or three fairly big uh, Kandinsky's. Am I I right about that? Yeah, no, they did. And
1: Kandinsky is an artist uh, almost like Clay and some others, where there's a very large body of work. Um, There are some truly great paintings, but for the most part, you'd call it a B, a middle-of-the-road are the pictures that come to market? Kandinsky isn't a name like Picasso or you know or or a Monet or any of these other sort of you know high branded names. You know, um, uh, though he is a very critical artist, so there isn't a broad audience for sort of that middle segment um, of his
0: market um, yet. But, but this that the work that just sold. Maybe a very good work, but I'm not sure you would call it a seminal work. So it's it, it sort of goes against that. It's a it's a tough kind of thing to sell without a, a very specific pitch about that particular work. The Murnau works that I'm thinking of from a couple of years ago. You could at least give c- comparable works right. that uh, uh, were you know very significant, and here was your opportunity to get one. I don't think anyone was saying necessarily saying that with this uh, Kandinsky.
1: No, no, uh, no. You're absolutely right on that and uh, maybe I'll return just to one thought before it leaves yeah. my mind as I was listening to you talk about the uh, the Murnau pictures and the pre-1910. You, you see with Kandinsky, um, also with Braque, you know, the great Cubists, it's the Fauve era works and the strong colors uh, that often seem to be dominating the higher price structures even when they aren't the most historically uh, important works. Uh, but you know, having having made that uh, that point. Yeah,
0: well, the art history and the art market do, yeah. don't always coincide. In fact, yeah. often don't coincide. Exactly.
1: There's a divergence, and maybe this returns me to the your question. As I was saying, people aren't really looking for middle of the road. That's what I said. Well, I also am kind of categorizing middle of the road in a in a price band too. You know, like a you know a two to eight million dollar Kandinsky, let's say um, you know, depending on the period that might represent, you know, fabulous work on paper, but for oils, you know, from the 20s on, um, you know, from two to five million isn't necessarily going to be a great picture. So while this isn't a seminal work or something I think a museum would have looked for to add, it was, you know, something with extraordinary wall power and, uh, and presence and I went through my own various changes in assessing that work. When I first saw it on the Christie's exhibition, I was like, "Oh, they overdid it. Uh, you know it's it's you know the, the composition, I'm not sure if it really holds together well the the relationship of colors, and then I have to admit, I walked into the sales room and I saw it hanging on the wall, and I remember saying to one of my friends, "Wow, that is actually a hell of an impressive painting."
0: It's nice to know that everyone's a sucker for presentation. It's true. You know. I mean,
1: it really, it really had a, a, a bang on the uh, on the wall. Um, but there are some things like when we talk about these sales, where we'll see you know, five to seven bidders, and here, outside of the one bid executed for the guarantor, there were just the two, and Ruth Catone I've often seen represent people with very specific, you know, taste, early 20th century modernism, Dada-related things, and if I'm recalling, it seemed to me like perhaps it was uh, one of their Asian representatives um, as the underbidder for the work. So. I
0: guess this is one of those cases where this could have really gone either way. It, it a lot depends on who shows up. Yeah. And as I think you're trying to say, there's sort of no telling uh, who this is going to be for. Um, which is, I guess, one of the reasons you have an auction, right? Just to see who comes out out of the woodwork. Um, I, I do want to talk about the the monk and the monk bidding because it seems to have um, somewhat unfairly. Because it sold to the third-party guarantor, uh, uh, the third party guarantor uh, appeared to be less of um, you know an exciting sale, but it's a very big number, uh, especially you know I, I, this work has done very well in the past. Uh, I, I know the Scream is not really something that that has a, an effect on the overall monk mar- m- market, but still, a fifty million dollar monk is is a, a lot of money. Uh, for that work uh, and an impressive uh, sale, even if it, it was to the um, guarantor. Do you, do you think that the guarantee squelched other bidders or just, you know, they found the right bidder? Well, a uh, right buyer, sorry.
1: Right. I, I guess there's a few approaches to that. One, I remember uh, when we had that in uh, back in 1996 and it made what I think might have been a record price then which was um, just under eight million dollars and at that time there was only one bidder. Then it came up again in 2008. Which
0: we should point out 1996 was you know, generally considered Death Valley in the art market, right? right? You know, yeah. it was uh, the things were beginning to things turn and change. Things were out of but, the right, but there have been five or six really right. yes. <laughs> bad years of thin catalogs and and also eight million dollars was a pretty damn good uh, sale. It
1: was, it was, and and I, we we took a gamble on that estimate because in that instance there was only one bidder, uh, and and maybe this little sequence is going to be informative then. Uh, we got it back about ten, twelve years later in two thousand eight, and the low estimate was around twenty-four million. And then it made thirty-one. We had competition for the work, and that got driven up to a new record. This time, basically, there was only one bidder, and that bidder was already, you know, lined up. It was
0: pre-sold. Now, one... that's a that's a fifty percent rise in eight years. Uh, from the uh, 2008 uh, if it was in in May before the uh, uh, credit crisis, so a fairly high level of the art market uh, to, to, to get fifty percent on that is a big leap Oh it really
1: it really is I mean from 96 to 2008 you had about a three to four three to four hundred percent rise here as you said it's about 50, 60 uh, percent. Um, the thing with the art market, as we all know, you just don't always know, you know, if it's an absolute number. Now, it's possible uh, that knowing that it was guaranteed, hearing Sotheby's quote as a guide in the region of $50 million put some people off, and that if it was estimated at $35 million, um, uh, then there might have been competition that would have taken it higher. There have been Years and years ago there was a monk landscape that made about 45 million dollars privately when no one realized they could make that kind of money and offers have been made to people uh, who own monks privately. I, I do think that that to me represents really right now what might have been its limit whether it was in an open free competition or worked out this this particular way. It was a great purchase, you know, because this is, you know, is a seminal work, is one of the great images. It's one of the few post-1900 works, you know, that I can think of that are truly worth um, this kind of price range. But it's it it gets hard sometimes to judge the overall market uh, when it's the one prearranged bid.
0: Well, I guess that was the point uh, I wanted to make is just because it sold, it, it sold to the prearranged bu- buyer, it still sold it's well. Still a real price, and yeah. I, and, and we all like uh, uh, to see the excitement uh, of it and all, all but uh, everyone's got to walk away happy for, from that. Maybe you know uh, the only letdown is the sort of lack of uh, PR uh, uh, excitement. And, and and while we're we're on that subject, maybe we should switch to the one that really did have yeah. uh, uh, the heat on it. Um, uh, The Monet, uh, which again, came in very late, uh, had a a pretty strong estimate uh, uh, on it. Certainly not um, uh, for the faint of heart, but I guess uh, one that was come hither and got people uh, interested, because it seemed there were a fair number of bidders uh, on that work.
1: Yeah, and I think they were uh, giving a uh, unprinted estimate at around $45 million. Yeah, this was a very different, uh, you know, circumstance from the monk. Um, first, yes, it was, it seems to have come late in the game, but in a lot of these instances, the uh, collectors had approached, the prospective seller had approached the auction houses. I'm in this sort of interesting moment where <laughs> I'm still not so far away from what was uh, happening over the past year. Uh, But, um, you know, there was uh, a period of time, I'm sure, where each house had to make its pitches and this, you know, the owner had to think about it. And then there's always the sort of the timing of the announcement uh, for effect. Now, one thing that really amazes me um, is we had this work when I was at Sotheby's in, uh, I think it was 1990, and we couldn't sell it. We had it estimated at six to eight million dollars, and there were no bidders. Um, so, you know.
0: But but the 1990s was at, literally at the end of the um, Impressionist boom, and uh, Correct me if I'm wrong, it, these are the later works that are seen as being not indicative of the great impressionist moment. And I don't know whether it's the the, the Japanese or the post-Japanese mm-hmm. uh, period and all, but clearly the, you, and and you've talked about, about this, the, this wasn't the sexy impressionist work that you wanted from Monet in the 1990s. There's been a turn over the last, what well, I guess it's uh, 25 years right. in taste. In part because of the interest in the um water lilies, or just be because the the great um, impressionist works are now all uh, you know in museums, and you have to focus on the series work I,
1: I think it's a combination of um, first and new generations of collectors with with a, a different taste even within the the same you know ism of impressionism and You know, the 1870s pictures are gorgeous, but I think they may look a little bit more like two-generation-ago type of trophy for the collection for the Park Avenue apartment with the nice drapery and the French furniture, whereas now somebody younger... Lots and lots
0: of flowers.
1: Exactly, and right right now, you know, a very wealthy person, let's say in their 50s, you know, um, you know, grew up differently, and these later works Particularly from the series, and then the water lilies, they speak to a sort of more modern sense of um, constructing the composition with some some senses of an abstract uh, framework or basis, the repeated units. Uh, but yes, yeah, so there's a taste change. There's an availability issue, although I still say today it's not. So much because eighteen seventies works are impossible, but in this instance, taste really has changed toward the uh, the later pictures, and so even though that couldn't even make a sale uh, in nineteen ninety, and there had been a double snow haystack uh, around that time that did sell, just this particular one had trouble then, but
0: you know what... But this is this is a pretty good one, or at least now, it, yeah. now it looks like a really good yeah. one. You know, everyone was, you know, uh, struck with the colors and mm-hmm. the uh, uh, ju- just um, you know, the overall impression the work uh, uh, made uh, without lining up, uh, you know, several of the other uh, uh, versions and all, all of this. So are you saying in 1990 it just didn't look as uh, as great an example or is it just the taste uh, of what we're responding to now really didn't um, excite it, people? It though? was
1: a little bit of both because the, um, the Winter Stacks and another work uh, did sell and I think it was the darker, kind of autumnal, deeper cast of colors here that were less varied, uh, were harder back then to find a buyer. Which, whereas today, again, I'm not trying to flatter the bidder, buyer, and underbidders, but you know, there's just a more of appreciation. Again, I'll just return to this idea of the abstract qualities of the picture, the modulations of color, and uh, you know, and things like that, and. You know, there had been one or two haystacks that had traded in the private market, um, and they were in the, you know, multiple 10 millions, not not up to 50 or more, as as I've known it. Um, but
0: you know, where's... And, and, and some of the other series, the Venice series, there have been recent sales in the, you know, Eight to twelve million range, and all, and some of the cathedrals, and all mm-hmm. that, but nothing, uh, you know, at this level. Right. I mean, the the last few things at this level, uh, not that I can can play, you know, bring up the the Monet market, seem like they would have been the water lilies that have so, sold the one that uh, Christie sold in two thousand and eight for mm-hmm. fifty or sixty. Uh, million dollars. Maybe it was 80. I can't remember. remember.
1: Uh, Well, the uh, bridge at Archentoy was 80 million. Oh, and you're right. Then there was from the Irwin Miller estate, an 80 million dollar late water lily. Mm -hmm. There was a Venetian scene at Sotheby's in London that made about 30 million dollars, you know, from the, uh, you know, from one of a series oriented uh, pictures.
0: This podcast is sponsored by Christie's Education New York. Christie's Education offers master's degrees and continuing education programs on all aspects of art history, art business, and the art market. Programs emphasize the importance of direct contact with original works of art and interaction with a network of artists and professionals to enhance students' exploration of the art world. Contact New York at Christie's.edu to schedule a meeting with an admissions counselor or faculty member or to tour the facilities. For details on their master's degree programs and for gainful employment information, visit christies.edu. But I guess
1: cutting back to the, you know, the basis, the monk perhaps was viewed as uh, already sold, not viewed as, it was already sold, and it was sold at what I think the general audience of professional and clients were seeing as, you know, perhaps its maximum price. The Monet was put out for open competition, and many of us thought 45 was actually quite fair, even though many people thought, "Well, maybe that's a little too too pushy." Although, of course, after the fact, everyone, you know, has uh, sometimes revises an opinion. Exactly,
0: they were they saw it coming the whole time. Yeah, um,
1: so you know, an awful lot of uh, bidders crowded in uh, right from the beginning, and. I got a little bit of a sense that some of the people bidding were not sort of the usual crowd on the short list of five to ten people because, you know, I was noticing, I'm sure others did, certain Christie's representatives bidding who you'd never seen bid in the room or you never saw bid to certain levels. And that's indicative of two things. One, uh, a familiar bidder doesn't want to be guessed at, so they'll switch to somebody who doesn't typically bid for them or bid for somebody at those price levels, or you know, somebody who's rather new to the bidding um, or crossed over from fields. I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if one of the major contemporary participants might have been uh, a bidder on that. But I think that was one of the longest bidding battles I've seen in ages.
0: Do you, do you think that um, some of those bidders might have been attracted by seeing uh, the bidding you know, at forty-five, it's a big number. But seeing other people happily uh, bidding in that range may uh, may bring in uh, others sitting on the fence, or is it just the you know the competition? Once you get invested uh, in in making a run at this thing, you, you stick with it. Well,
1: people do want to see. You know, um, other bidders, and, you know, we've all experienced that, and maybe most, you know, uh, memorably in my career, the the Giacometti Chariot, where, you know, that momentum just didn't take off. Um, There wasn't that first bid that got secured early, you know, as the auctioneer opened things up, and that interjected doubt. You know, I think the owner's pretty happy with it now. But,
0: but but in this particular sale, if I remember correctly, there was um, there was dead silence and um, Andreas Rumbler had to literally you know make the declaration this is going to sell right uh, and and of course, once someone broke the um, stalemate, the bidding took off.
1: Yeah, no, he started uh, I took some notes. He started at 35 million. and so I, I guess there's two comments on the question, you know, why does something start slow and do people need to see other bidders or are they just walked in committed? When, I think I found when things are, when it's not necessarily clear how high something is going to go because it's rather unique in terms of appearance on the market, then people they're, they're coming to bid they're on the phones to bid, but they just kind of want to see it start it's not obvious yet so from thirty five up until of Jordan making the first bid at forty million, there were clearly you know to my count at least five people on telephones you know just waiting for the thing to start and then it starts, and then you get sort of a first segment of buyers that went from 40 million up to you know sort of the high 40s with just two of the christie's people i think it was brooke and connor and then according to my notes in the high 40s then we have rebecca way who i guess is representing some of their asian clientele jump in and every new like 10 million or so higher than another bidder comes in or an old bidder who decided to just stop at 50 and wait and see where it goes clearly jumps back in brooke you know, who I think, uh, you know, was stopped bidding in the high 40s, all of a sudden pop back in uh, just below $70 million. So there's, an, there's a, a really intriguing kind of cat and mouse game. It's almost like a tennis game, except there's six or seven different players, you know, all volleying the balls back at uh, at different paces. So, you know, maybe to return to the question and stop with my, my recollections, I can say that if Christie's had walked in saying they uh, were going with an unpublished estimate at $65 that would have really been hard. It could have been an entirely different.
0: Well, but that's part of, I guess, what I was asking about um, the confirmation of bidding, less for, you know, the, the five usual suspects that you would have shopped this picture to, but more if there were crossover buyers, if there were people clearly with the money, but maybe who are not um, Impressionist collectors or Monet collectors, but have uh, discovered a taste for that particular work, who's seeing other people bid feel now more comfortable saying, okay, I, I, it, I, I think this thing's worthwhile, and uh, if I want it, I'm going to have to pay more than the, these guys. I mean, you know, uh, obviously, there are people. There's all f- forms of bidding, and and a lot of people wait till the very last second to try and steal the things and all. And, and as you said, it certainly looked like Brooke was, you know, f- feeling like being the uh, a stalking horse and pulled out to see if he could let, let everyone else sort of, you know, exhaust themselves uh, uh, and all. But uh, it was just that that particular idea of of other sorts of non um, traditional. Monet or impressionist collectors, you, 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 seeing the bidding as a uh, a, a confirmation of value. Uh, look no one's no one's stealing this for cheap. They're, they're obviously spending a lot of money uh, uh, on it, but you know wanting to see that the, what they're spending their money on, uh, you know, someone else uh, uh, would have too.
1: yeah, I mean, it's it's probably not the best feeling, and I've once or twice,
0: you know helped
1: somebody where. You bid at near record levels, and then no one else bids (laughs) one step further, and you wonder, you know, what did I, did I just make a mistake, or was I the courageous one? You know, it's, it's easy for me to say, but after like over 30 years, I still uh, never talk to anyone who owns a great picture, who's, you know, says I overpaid for it, or, you know, I, I shouldn't have bid on it, and people only regret. I think an interesting,
0: the, they only regret what they they, only they failed to buy. Failing.
1: yeah. If it was a good picture, no one's ever you know says, and I'm still damn mad. You know, I I spent that much money on it. I, I
0: was gonna say, and and if you needed the money for other purposes, you probably shouldn't have been buying something anyway.
1: Yeah. One question I always have is, I've watched these. Prices rise, and when you look in these sales, we've got numbers of examples where we see different rates of increase or inflation for different artists or different periods of the artist's work. Um, you know, my career, things went up by such magnitudes. I'm just wondering, so what does this Monet become worth 30 years from now? Uh, you know, it's, or even five or ten years from now, it just simply couldn't be the same Pace of I think
0: that's I think that's a big problem for the modern market as a whole. Those works more than you know everyone is focused on the rise in contemporary values, but the works that people really feel have stable value. And have been bid up, certainly since the financial crisis, have been these, you know, 20th century works from very well-established uh, uh, names and usually, you know, seminal pieces. And I don't think you can then think, okay, th- that's why I mentioned earlier with the monk. I'll get 50 percent on my money if I have to to right. sell it all. You have to presume that you're buying at a, a, a very high uh, level. And it's going to take a long time if you care about the money side of it. Now- you you may also view it as it's a safe place to put your money, and God forbid something happens, you could at least uh, get your money out of it, which you can't necessarily say of uh, uh, other investments. But it's very hard to imagine that you know this is a market where people are going to look at the very obvious great works and see that they're going to get a bargain of some kind.
1: Yeah, and and this is uh, you know very timely because I was just visiting a collector who's uh, you know uh, has a fund and. Um, started uh, in the 70s, he probably started about 10-15 years ago to collect art. Uh, He, you know, was enjoying it, but he said right from the start he was thinking about a little asset diversification, uh, and he was studying the art market trends. Uh, But he was drawn to this sort of classic earlier modernism, impressionism, Post-Impressionism to mid-20th century, And we were talking, and uh, so he had just been buying in the last 10 years. And he was, you know, had tabulated his rate of return and his increase, and he said, you know. I thought I was getting in here for like an equities play for a growth stock. He says it turns out to have been more of a fixed.
0: (laughs) And look, bonds are good too, and and certainly in this environment. But 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 yeah, it's hard to imagine how you would look at a lot of these works, which you know there's changing opinions but not whole categorical. Right. we've re- rediscovered artists i mean the you mentioned earlier the one artist where where there has been huge appreciation has been in the late picassos mm-hmm. but it's just that anomaly of that right. one sector of his mar- market yeah. and even that's not uh been that short-lived i mean mm-hmm. it's now almost, uh 10 or more years that we you know those things have, have become Absolutely. eight, ten million, 12 million dollar works
1: yeah and and thence, within Picasso and several artists, it's uh, it's their later work uh, that people are sort of plumbing these long careers and these real prodigious outputs, and they start to find something where there's, you know, a more ready supply uh, and works that, you know you can perhaps have judged as undervalued. And late Picasso was absolutely the case. but Late Miro became. I was just going to say, especially too. given
0: his his resonance with so much contemporary mm-hmm. right. uh, uh, abstract painting. I mean, there there are, the joke a couple of years ago has been to put a late Miro next to some of these right. you know twenty some odd thirty year old pa- painters from from Europe, and guess which one was yeah. Uh, he still looks. Good. He still looks pretty good. Uh, so uh, let, let let's talk about Picasso for a second, because if you look at the top ten works for the week. Right after the three we've just discussed, the next four are all Picasso works, which shouldn't be a surprise since he is the driver of the um, uh, a modern market. And, and you know, uh, Christie's put a lot of effort into creating that um, sort of Picasso uh, section of their sale. But those works did nicely, but not spectacularly. I mean, maybe to get to sell them, you were going to have to put pretty good estimates on them anyway. I mean, certainly that the Dora Mar um, uh, was a lovely picture, a uh, very striking uh, 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 one, but not one that seemed to get uh, people terribly excited. You know, there were a couple of uh, uh, others that, there uh, that seemed to, to, to do well uh, with it. Is it just, you know, half de- decent to good works trading uh, uh, well, but people just not uh, getting thrilled by them?
1: Well, I mean, one interesting uh, point on that Picasso, the man with the pipe, which we can actually look at any number of Picassos and other works in these two sales that have been uh, at auction before. Back in 2007, um, that made just about $12 million. Uh, So now it made around $18 million. So we have uh, looking at 50%. You know, one one comment I, I... I'll make maybe right off the bat uh, is as I watched um, the sales uh, on certain types of works like that, there was dealer bidding. You know, and some of the first high prices reached for, um, you know, late Picasso's were being driven by dealers. When we at Sotheby's had one for $30 million, that is was, you know, uh, seen once or twice in the Nabad booth at the, uh, at one of the Basel fairs, uh, the two people who been under them were also art dealers uh, that doubled its price. So it's interesting how the dealers, you know, have their sense of uh, where the market's going. But in terms of the Picasso performance, yes, that Doromar was a, just a charming, beautiful painting. It would be you know, impossible not to like it, but it was a smaller example and, you know, I think a lot of people thought that might have just been a little bit too much of a, a pushed estimate to really draw people in. And what I watched in the sale, it looked like it was two Christie's representatives, each Japanese uh, representatives who did the bidding, so you know, that that was interesting. Um, I think it was also kind of fun to see how well that very early 1899 uh, portrait did. yes, That was really, uh, you know, surprising. It it sometimes hard to predict what, what, um, you know, what people will go for. I suppose it just had presence, and when you're in front of something, you just know it. In fact, there was so much bidding, and I made a note that uh, there was actually a jumped bid. Uh, I think it went from 1.4 to two at one point. Um, uh, I had to note that Maria, uh, in the, did a jump, so people really wanted that particular work. The owl did fantastic too, uh, but. I suppose going back to your, your well, but, question, but that's but that always yeah. but
0: that goes to the point. I mean, you know, uh, uh, one they did their jobs well. They they put them at the front of the sale, knowing that there there would be a lot of interest, uh, and they were estimated to to get everyone both interested and a, and the the sale rolling uh, along. Uh, but it does sort of suggest that. It's the kind of market where people are looking for something overlooked. The Owls are a great example of there have been three or four sold mm-hmm. in the last uh, right. a, a few years. All have done really well. And I this, see,
1: this was the, the best of the uh, group, as I can recall, the way this one was painted.
0: The, the Less white than yeah. the other ones. And I, that um, little study from the Kaibat uh a lot of people noticed that and remarked upon it uh but it didn't do terribly well it it looked like it was going to be one of those sleepers and it sort of didn't yeah no i agree and i i thought it was
1: absolutely charming and you you recommended it uh to some people it was really lovely i think one of the easier things for me to sort of you know point to that might have uh that did hold it back was that Uh, It did have a stamp um, that it was left in the studio and it was a stamp signature and, you know, that clearly was unfinished and you can see in the background, you know, that it was a a study for that figure in his famous painting, Uh, but, you know, perhaps both the unfinished edges and this very like evident looking stamp um, might have hampered it well. You know, some people might say decry the the lack of connoisseurship that's out there. I think there might have been more people who appreciated than wanted to own it, and that might also go to the just the change of taste. Uh, well, it, uh, it's a million bucks. Yeah, a million it's a bucks is, is a lot of money for, to spend
0: on on a you know a, a curiosity or, or or something.
1: No, you're right. This would have been the type of painting that would have been you know, an interesting sort of connoisseur curiosity painting within a very large Impressionist collection where, you know, where it wouldn't have been a million dollars the or the equivalent of 30 years ago and it would just be a very charming thing that was appreciated. But you're right, a million bucks is a million bucks and you know, what do you, you know, where could that money go? Truthfully, all of the, uh, save Monet, the Impressionist pictures really did not do well at all. Uh, so many didn't sell the beautiful large Pizarro Rouen scene, the mm-hmm. Cezanne landscape. Cezanne's an artist that both auction houses, all of them, have always overvalued. Be- as important as he is, we've always overassessed, you know, his appeal to collectors. The Sisleys didn't do well. Pizarro's didn't do well, as I said. Um, you know, it was really only Monet who's absolutely. More than resilient is just.
0: Well, there were. I mean, uh, going further de- down, uh, uh, there was that big Miro um, sculpture. The that sculpture that that completely shocked me. It looked like a Barbara Hepworth, and yeah. and, and it, it it certainly didn't get priced as a Barbara de- Hepworth. No, and you
1: know we. Uh, I remember we had one of those at auction. Uh, Gosh, I, I, I have to remember, it was probably 20 years or more. Maybe it was 30 years ago. And we couldn't even sell it for $250,000. And it makes $6 million, And I was, I don't, I think everybody was baffled. And I remember before the auction, a couple people asking me, what do you think that will go for? How high could that go? And I was, I was really flat-footed on that, you know, that it went up. I had... Notes here of about four or five bidders, and went to a private collector. Yeah, and I made a note in 1996; it couldn't even hit two hundred thousand dollars.
0: Well, I mean, 1996; it doesn't look like a Miro, uh, yeah. and and you would be you would want to own a recognizable Miro, I suppose. There's a case to be made that. Um, with the vogue for uh, uh, big sculptures of the mm-hmm. last few years, uh, suddenly that's more valuable because it fits in with the moors that have been right. selling Hepworths and, and the Hepworths and all uh, the all these outdoor you know pieces. As a matter of fact, uh,
1: I think it was the person who bought it. You know, had just mentioned to me the idea of how well will it be suited to be outdoors. Oh. so uh, a lot of people with these large estates looking for sort of populate the area with these big sculptures. Uh, that that'll
0: certainly look good yeah. uh, on on a hilltop somewhere. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or with the
1: ocean in the view. Exactly, <laughs> but through through the opening
0: in it. The the Maholinage, uh, you know, was surprisingly fought over. Uh, you know, it went to MoMA uh and all. Uh I guess they 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 had a good sense that there would be uh, real demand uh, for that um, The there's a Chagall if you sort of go down through the prices uh, That did surprisingly well. It was estimated at 1.2 to was 1.8 the, million um, the red nude the rose yep. Yeah, and, and it and it sold for we're all in for almost 4.3 uh, a million and you know Chagall's one of those artists right there's a there's a ton of work and there are certain things that that are w- w- much fought over and then a lot of stuff that just get, gets sold either you know to its constituency or or, or not it, it, you have any thoughts on on where that all came from yeah i you know I think you said it you you get
1: artists with uh you know long careers and a really large output um and and maybe the market is just sort of moderate. You know, there there were a couple instances here where you know, uh, a Chagall, you know, came back to market. Uh, for example, the one of the, uh, the Bride, the large painting, um, sold at the Christie's sale uh, for you know, about nearly eight million dollars. In 2007 it was seven million. It didn't really change a whole lot. But what's my point? Uh, sometimes just a picture with presence uh, just grabs people. And I see this with Chagall and I occasionally see it with Renoir where somebody likes the work and then they always have to preface it by saying, you know, I don't really like Chagall. <laughs> I don't really go for Renoir. But that picture really...
0: Uh, I'm not that kind of sucker. I... <laughs> right.
1: But this, this picture just, uh, first, something as simple as red. They always, you know, are the most appealing. People are always drawn to them. And it was just a solid a painting that came in. It was mid-career; it wasn't late career, so it wasn't one of those gauzy, thin, you know, works. It was from '49, uh, where he's still doing a lot of good work. Uh, the estimate was very low—one two to one eight for you know a thirty-inch oil. Um, you know, I, I don't think anyone would have blinked if it was estimated at two to three million, uh, and. Uh, you know, I I saw somebody in the room I hadn't recognized before uh, on a cell phone. I don't know why. I made some assumption he might have been Russian. I don't know why, but uh, he started uh, bidding away. I saw one or two art dealers bidding. You he,
0: made the assumption he was Russian because it was a Chagall. Uh, yeah, was it's,
1: yeah, no, that's true, because it was because uh, it was a Chagall and uh, <laughs> I don't know. Something a- about if his, it had been in a
0: Renoir, you might have yeah, also thought he was Russian, yeah,
1: too. Something about his, his jacket <laughs> and his, uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I don't want to make too many uh, assumptions, but you could tell that was going to be a runner even when you walked into their exhibition. It, it just, and some pictures, when you look at them in the catalog, you can you can see what you're going to get you can tell how you're going to feel about it this was a picture where when you actually stood in front of it and you took in its scale and surface you just couldn't help but saying hey that's a striking picture so
0: it's n- it's nice to know that the whole process works yeah. you know that uh, showing people a picture brings out uh, a lot of uh, different perspectives and interest in it and them. you just have to estimate
1: it properly again if that was 3 to 4 million i don't think that would have sold
0: well, I guess that that, that, that says a fair bit about that market, right, mm-hmm. is uh, uh, attractive estimates uh, provoke people to re-evaluate works, and uh, they get a little bit of confirmation by having someone to bid against and sort of, you know, we're off and running again. Yeah, particularly where there's
1: a lot of established pricing with Chagall, and then we return to the the maholinage you know, which you mentioned had done so well in MoMA, you know clearly you know had a had a high limit to send their agent in there Majinska. um in a way, pictures like that, the auctioneer or the auction house is kind of framing the value uh and I'm sure this particular estimate of three to four million was done you know as much by just pure intuition and, you know, what does it feel like, there certainly weren't comparable pieces to, you know, to, uh, to point to. And uh, again, that, that did really, that did well. And I, I don't doubt that some of these bidders, I'm looking at my notes, um, were not people who ever identified themselves as wanting the Maholi Naj, or even necessarily were familiar with the whole period. They just were drawn to the, uh, the object.
0: Because it's a, uh, you know, an abstract kind of suprematist mm-hmm. work that really kind of gets you a, a vectored into a bunch of different parts of uh, right. art history. Yeah, and vector is a very <laughs>
1: good use of that word for this picture. And it's, it just, it had presence and it was something unique and I, and people really did love the Maholina Nas show at the uh, Guggenheim. There's certain times an exhibition really makes you see Wow, this this artist has a complex, wonderful body of work that you can never tell if you're just somebody in the marketplace and you don't see examples
0: like this. Or you just go to a permanent collection and happen to see an example as part of a story or or something that's being shown Mm -hmm. there. Um, There was also a Kees van Dagen that I uh, I wanted to ask you about because it sold well. Really well, yeah. It's lot seven, but it's one of those... (laughs) It reminds me of the, the Arab that did very yeah, well the, the full uh, thing. Exactly, But it also, the large eyes, it, it, it's on the cusp of two different things, like the mm-hmm. early and the late. The large eyes almost sort of suggests that kind of period of his work that people aren't so fond of, uh, of the red figure of, of the early uh, uh, work. And I was just, you know, is it is it just it's a striking uh, 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 piece? I mean, it did... Did reasonably well yeah. above the estimate range.
1: Yeah, no, it did very well. It made uh, all in three point six million. So it, uh, with buyer's premium, doubled the low. And uh, just uh, as I'm always like to be a student of the markets, this was at auction in 1987, and it made three hundred fifty thousand dollars. So uh, ten times in thirty years, it's it's a little. It's definitely on the cusp in terms of period. The Great Fauve is 1905 to 07, and you do get that fiery color and that sort of absence of too much detail in the face. 1912 is still a strong time, but just as you say, we're starting to get those sort of doe eyes and,
0: you With know. The, the hats are coming, yeah, the big the hats flowered hats, are, hats coming. are coming.
1: Exactly, any, any moment. But it, it looked, it had enough of a foot in the Fauve. Um, and was red, and had a lot of wall presence beyond its actual size. Uh, So the, um, you know, it it, it just ended up going uh, very high, and uh, again, I don't know if all my little minute observations are of uh, value or not, but I noticed uh, one of the specialists who bought it uh, was a terrific uh, young guy in the department, and um, Named Julian Dawes. And so I get a, a feeling he might have been bringing somebody along who might not have been a bitter in that region or territory. Uh, and it was really stepping up and exciting. Well, you,
0: you can see a work like that could hang in a lot of different collections. I mean, the last place it needs to be is in a you know early 20th century, late 19th century, right. uh, uh, you know, French uh, uh, or European art collection. It's mm-hmm. just a very striking uh, a piece that way. Well, that's actually um, a, a great way to bring up uh, the last kind of question for all of this, which is: there's so much hand wringing about this category, especially like, oh, there's no good materials, as if it at all like evaporated you know into thin air or it's all been you know immured in some museum and all and says you know there's no excitement with this after and this is obviously only one sales season and all what's your kind of uh take uh and and feeling for you know the impressions right. are. Are there new? It feels like they're around the edges in different places. New people coming in or new artists that are attracting uh, uh, interest. It may not have, you know. I mean, actually, in this sale, we had a lot of excitement around the very top lot mm-hmm. uh, uh, as well. well. I mean, the numbers are still pretty big. In the end, I think we said it's $450, 70000000 million mm-hmm. uh, between bo- both houses. That's a, that's a lot of money spent on impressionist and mo- modern art. I mean, what's your take since this is your, your business on, <laughs> on the field these days?
1: Well, I think my whole career, I would listen to the uh, professionals, a generation or two older than me, decry, "It's over. There's nothing left. It's a dying market. We have to find ways to reinvigorate it." Christie's did the nineteenth-century sales and the twentieth-century sales. Even before that, I remember when uh, I was working with my mentor David Nash, we started to put Latin American pictures into the impressionist sales and American to sort of make sure we could maintain a high quality because there was such a paucity of, uh, of great works. So on the one hand I would say you know I've never bought into the fact that this is going to be a disappearing market akin to the old masters uh, and that they'll never, you know, there will come a day when the well runs completely dry and you can't put a sale together of enough consequence. Um, however, uh, you know, the, the supply does diminish the era of a lot of the supply, the great supply, comes from estate sales. And there, were, there was an era of great collecting in the 50s, the 60s, the 70s. Those became the major estates that were being sold in the late 70s, the 80s, the mid-90s. I think somewhat demographically, the collections with a lot of major to early 20th century, they've, they've been dispersed at sales some are being formed in collections that, you know, knock on wood for them, won't be quote-unquote estates for a long time or will go to museums. Uh, and
0: well, or, or we're seeing, that you know, there's one particular real estate uh, person in New York who is a great natural collector who has been playing this market yeah. with uncanny uh, ability. If, you, you, and, and still, like, uh, one presumes, owns a fair amount, amount of art, but w- looking back over what's been sold the last few years, if that had uh, been sold as an estate, it would have been one of the great uh, sales of all time. Yeah, if
1: you gathered back all that property, it would have been, yeah. But as
0: it is, he's probably made far more by choosing the right moment uh, uh, to sell uh, piece by piece it, uh, it, You know, in the most advantageous well, uh, you're, times. Well, you're
1: very right about that, because when I, I think about, you know, the works that you know maybe the press has identified, I'll be more circumspect. Um, so many major pieces, they would have been too much for one for one sale. Um, and so yeah, it was very shrewd. and it's also so interesting for collectors like the one you refer to who were buying pieces in the seventies, um, what an overwhelming well, I can't speak to this individual, but yeah. the the art the value of the art collection becomes such an overwhelming percentage of their total net worth uh, that uh, you know, for some people, I'm not speaking about this person. It almost it becomes concerning to them, you know, well, that, to be the, so overweighted. the The, the
0: Great Gans uh, yeah. collection sale ended up being exactly that. That overwhelmed everything to do with yeah. with what the family had. It was the family's real asset, uh, and I mean, it, it was a great landmark sale. And in some ways, I think, you know what 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 we miss is is it the art market could use somewhere in the next few years right. an Yves Saint Laurent style sale just one of these extraordinary um everyone wants to be a part of it uh a sale uh you know just to, to to either great get a great piece from a great collector right. or to say they got something from from that um uh, uh sale but the question is if one of the you know
1: still remaining mega collectors with these great collections Now, if they came up, as opposed to it being a $300 million sale, some of these collections are a billion or more, uh, it'll be very interesting whether, you know, an auction house advises, you know, uh, the next estate that really does include a a Gans-like selection, a Dorans-like selection, whatever, you know, uh, you might look at Von Hirsch, um, whether to put it up all at once. 'cause just as you said that that one individual um I think that just would have been too many major works i mean is well reported the Giacometti pointing man I mean you know if that was one of many yeah, you know in a single collection, it might have been very different, yeah, it might not have been usually you think you know the, the all benefit from the presentation together
0: the but uh well i assume you're you're taxing the even the 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 great wealth that exists in the world today the resources the the emotional and intellectual resources uh, of someone who might buy several of those works over time mm-hmm. asking them to buy them all in one evening right. or one week it may be too much uh, 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 to to really get them going and uh, uh, you know as you said earlier uh, 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 throw caution to the wind and and buy what they want cuz they won't regret it This is a special edition of the Artelligence Podcast, sponsored by Christie's Education New York. Christie's Education, where art history meets the art market. Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com.